Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Here's Armstrong and Getty. So I I came across this uh, the other day. I thought it was just terrific and so interesting. Mark Hemingway, do you know him? He used to write for the Weekly Standard. He's a conservative writer, a thinker, et cetera. Um, And he's describing his experience in the final weeks of working at the Weekly Standard. Um, And and he describes the, the fairly early days of Facebook banning Alex Jones um, after, by the way, a pressure campaign launched by CNN. And while Alex Jones didn't have a lot of fans at the Weekly Standard, which is famously a kind of, uh, you know, tweed jacket wearing serious conservative uh, outlet. Um, while they, there were no Alex Jones fans, they were pretty uncomfortable that, that, uh, Facebook did that after a campaign by CNN, which had been falsely pitching the Russia narrative, for instance, the Russia collusion narrative for years and years. So that's where we start. And he, he also mentions that it was, uh, it was late in the lives of the Weekly Standard and its staff because they had financial problems and, and it wasn't clear whether everybody was going to get their job, have, keep their jobs and the rest of it. Um, and then he talks about, oh, there we go. Um, the Weekly Standard employed a fact checker who had his salary paid for by Facebook. Less than a year before, editors above my pay grade, he writes, decided we were going to be one of a handful of media outlets that agreed to partner with Facebook for the social media giant's, quote, fact-checking program. In exchange for a few crumbs from a company with a trillion-dollar marketing cap, we would write fact-checks, taking politicians and pundits to task for spreading disinformation. Facebook would then use those write-ups to make content-moderating decisions. Mm. So... Uh, you know how Facebook bans or suppresses or deplatforms or whatever posts for disinformation unless, based on the work of their faction. Unless Justice Sotomayor says it, then it doesn't count. Exactly. I mean, the fact that it's wildly biased is beyond dispute, and let's go ahead and stipulate that right now. Uh, in addition to writing fact-check columns for our website, the, fact, the Facebook-funded fact-checker would also be serving as a traditional in-house fact-checker which is something all politicians have had, by the way, throughout history. It's somebody, a lower-level journalist, who goes over the article as written, and, you know, if it says Jones, who lives at 123 Main Street, they'll verify that Jones lives at 123 Main Street. That's what fact-checkers have traditionally been. But anyway, so uh, the Facebook-funded fact-checker would also go over magazine articles pre-publication to root out errors. The editor saw this as a win-win. Then he mentions, and I think this is interesting, I, never, I was never consulted by the editors, about this for obvious reasons. In 2016, I wrote a piece for the magazine's website bluntly calling Facebook's plan to partner with outside media organizations to fact-check a terrible idea. And years before that, in 2011, I had written a cover story for the magazine headlined Lies, Damned Lies, and Fact-Checking, the first major and deeply critical examination of media fact-checking. So Mark is no, no big fan. Here's where it gets really, really interesting. Once upon a time, editors at the magazine would have agreed with me about how corrupt it was that Facebook was now paying PolitiFact to produce these partisan hatchet jobs. Um, and, and he goes into some detail that um, 
uh, political uh, politifact, which is crazy biased, uh, gave Obama's promise about if you like your health insurance, you can keep your health insurance. It rated it true six different times. When the law phased in, PolitiFact then dangerously, disingenuously made it the lie of the year, etc. Um, so, okay, moving along. So, they hire the fact checker paid by Facebook. And here's where it gets interesting. The guy hired as our fact checker, as it happens, was a diligent, hardworking, and intelligent journalist in a relatively thankless job. But he was also in his early 20s early 20s, comparatively inexperienced, and had written at least one fact-check column where I disagreed with his conclusions strongly, and conservative blogs had a field day blasting the Weekly Standard for what he had written. But to his credit, he seemed to know his limits, and this prompted him to speak up in our staff meeting. Even before the Alex Jones ban, he said he was growing concerned about his job because of the growing power of Facebook. Mm. He explained that whenever he did one of his fact-checking columns, part of his gig involved going into a special portal in Facebook's back-end created for its fact-checking mercenaries where he entered details about his fact-check. When he entered a claim of false, he was asked to enter the URL, the link to the story, where he found the claim, at which point Facebook, according to their own press releases, would then kill 80% of the global Internet traffic to that story. Wow. Our fact-checker explained that this was making him uncomfortable. Some of the fact-checks were complicated, and he felt his judgment wasn't absolute. Like, I trust my judgment fairly good on this sort of thing, but, man, I'd be nervous before I gave the thumbs down to something that was going to get canceled 80% of it worldwide by Facebook. You know what? really want to have your ducks in a row. That's a power, man. It was a record-scratch moment in the staff meeting. After a beat, I spoke up and said something to the effect of, You mean to tell me that a single journalist has the power to render judgment to nearly wipe a news story off the Internet? For several billion people. Right. It dawned on me and several other people that whatever influence our failing publication had now was being leveraged to act as part of a terrifying effective censorship regime controlled by a hated social media company run by one of the world's richest men. And again, to to summarize it, if maybe you're just getting up, you're sleepy-headed. A single 23-year-old journalist who says, man, some of this stuff is complicated, and I'm not sure I'm right, had the power to kill 80% of a global Internet news story. And we all picture like a uh, team of seasoned veteran journalists, scientists, economists, etc., taking on these topics when uh, when we hear about fact-checking and then right. rendering a verdict, not a 22-year-old who says, I don't know, sounds right to me. <laughs> right, right. And there's more to this article where he points out um, some obvious examples going forward of just absolutely unforgivable acts of propping up one quote-unquote fact or knocking down another quote-unquote fact um, by these so-called fact-checkers and how they've run rampant. And uh, I don't remember. It's a really, really lengthy article, um, and what I just quoted to you is from right in the middle. But, I mean, to cite an obvious example, the Wuhan lab leak theory, that was absolutely scourged from the Internet. Just Hold on, scrubbed ah, from the Internet. Ah, Omicron! Omicron! Coronavirus! Oh, that could be. Cardi. Everybody's got it now. Great. Coronavirus! There you go. But, uh, you know, there are a dozen examples involving COVID. 
questioning this official policy or that, you know, uh, drug or or just legitimate questioning, questioning of the doctrine. Do cloth masks really do any good? Those articles were scrubbed from the Internet by probably some 22-year-old somewhere whose sympathies lie with the COVID paranoia and said, no, that's that's not true. I'm giving that pants on fire. That's not a fact. Right. And the global empire of Zuckerberg and, and Dorsey and Zuckerberg, well, Dorsey's not the CEO of Twitter anymore, but you know these guys look at each other, and if Facebook bans something because it was fact-checker, that is not true, well, then Twitter would ban it, too. Thanks, Twitter. On the basis of a single, barely post-adolescent minimum wager, Good gracious, the Internet's scary. Super skinny Dorsey, who ran uh, Twitter, now that he's not running Twitter anymore, next time we see him, he's going to look like Lebowski. He's going to be a big, fat guy in a robe and slippers. That'd be funny. (laughs) Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. I forewarned you. Let's go, Brandon. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So, uh, good news for equity in the world of college swimming. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Transgender swimmer, swimmer Leah Thomas, we've been talking about all year long, who swims for Yale. The Ivy League Championships began last night. She's going to compete in three different races, I believe. She's currently the record holder in all three events, I believe. She wow, said that's a, really impressive. She not only finished first, but she set a new pool record, distancing everyone else in the pool. Amazing. uh, It is amazing. It's good news. That woman is unique in her physical abilities. She certainly is. Uh, Do you have more on that, or can I jump into the new term of art I've learned? Uh, She has got, uh, so she set the pool record, I think it was the 500-yard, but she's also going to race in the 200-yard and 1,650-yard freestyle events, where she's expected to dominate those also. And uh, there you go. And a whole bunch of uh, other women who swam were very unhappy that this occurred. And I don't blame them. I think uh, they're probably enraged, frankly. Just came across this piece written by uh, Cynthia Monteleone, who is a Team USA World Masters track athlete. That means older competitors. Uh, a mom of a female athlete and a coach of, of woman athletes. Uh, and she wrote an editorial. I will quote briefly. I'm a mom, a coach, etc. I was fighting for something greater than another gold medal. I'm standing up for the protection of women's sports. If, and here's the term I just learned, if male-bodied athletes continue competing on female teams, it will be the end of women's sports. This is no exaggeration. This is reality, and it's happening right now. She talks about competing against a male-bodied athlete who she was an elite woman runner. And this athlete, when it was a dude, when he, he, when she, he was a dude, um, I still haven't figured out when you're referring to the person pre-transition what you're supposed to say. But anyway, when that guy was a guy, was a middling athlete at best, and is now a world-class woman, who she barely, barely beat. The next year, the same athlete beat my teammate in the hurdles for a place on the podium at the 2019 World Championship Indoor Meet in Poland. My teammate had trained harder than anyone I know, dedicated her life to her sport, etc., etc. A year and a half after my experience at Spain, my daughter lost to a biological male identifying as a female in her first ever high school track race. 
I had watched proudly as my strong and determined girl did all the right things, made personal difficult sacrifices to train her body to be as fast and fit as possible for her first race, yet all her hard work seemed to drift away along with the male-bodied athlete who had just transferred from the boys' volleyball team to the girls' team the season before. The athlete breezed right to her win in uh, first place, uh, blah, 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 oh, breezed right by my daughter to win first place, leaving her to finish second. How can you win as a female when you're lined up next to a male body whose strength, heart, and lung capacity and pace are all greater than your own, no matter what treatment they might uh, they might have received? A male-bodied athlete. Well, that's got to be pretty uncomfortable there on the Yale swim team bus when they're driving home, since 16 of her teammates penned a letter to the NCAA saying, don't let her race, this is a sham. Um, uh, somebody standing up for her, because there's, you know, People out there that are on that side of the argument. People people incapable of logic, yes. Said, I want everyone at this meet to know that I support her. She's worked for all this, and she's given up so much to transition and to be authentically herself. I think it's really important, and I think it's really brave what she's doing today. I'm all for her being authentically herself and all that sort of stuff, but you don't get to compete in the sports against women. You just don't. Right. Right. Thank you for that greeting card worth of emotional rhetoric that means nothing, though. Why? Why can't we come to the sensible place where, okay, we're going to we're going to we're going to go with trans as a thing. And uh, and we're we're in agreement that you can do that. And uh, I will call you she and all the stuff that uh, should happen. But you don't get to compete against girls in sports. Nope. And anybody who hates or hurts or denies anybody a right to earn a living or anything like that is a, is a monster. And I disown you. I don't want you to listen right. to our radio show. Uh, on the other hand, a male-bodied athlete whooping up on girls is as... I almost said an unkind word, folks, and I apologize for even thinking it. <laughs> I apologize for thinking it. Wow. Anybody, anybody who thinks that's okay has a screw loose. I urge you to get help. You're at a good level of your conscience right there where you apologize for thinking things. Yeah. That's really good. It's partly that I, I, I fancy myself like a, I don't know, like a third-level wordsmith. And, you know, you got to be able to work around the limitations and, you know, just, just find another way. <laughs> you know, it's, eh, eh, hmm. <laughs> ah, boy. I know. I know. I know. So we got no suit. We got no football this weekend. We've had like three weekends in oh. a row of the greatest NFL football of all time, and uh, it just kind of feels like there's a hole this weekend. You know what? And here's some more bad news as we unleash the the, <laughs> the most depressing radio show in the history of American broadcasting. It looks like there ain't going to be a baseball for a long damn time. Oh, too. really? They're, oh, at, yeah. they're at an impasse, as they say. Well, there's a yeah. The the players are locked out. Essentially, they're making no progress. Nobody has any optimism. The owners have thrown a knuckleball. You're a grade like eight in a wordsmith. If that's all you got. <laughs> so, what's the main thing? Just the, the usual money. We want more money, and we don't want to give you more money. Is it just yeah. that and then coming to the right number? Yeah, I happen to read that there the uh, collective bargaining agreement's like 370 pages long or something ridiculous like that, and there's all sorts of stuff in there about money and rights and and shares of revenue, and just, it's crazy complicated. So, what exactly are the main uh, sticking points? Beard I lengths. Look, I I could look into it. Is there a rule on beard lengths? The players want four strikes. I feel I feel like the beard lengths have gotten out of hand. The pitchers don't, Michael. I can promise you that. Uh, the beard lengths have gotten out of hand. What are you, the Taliban? <laughs> um, with all negotiations like that, I've always thought, why, why can't you 
somehow get to a, look, we know this is going to end at some point. So why don't we do that now to the benefit of everyone? But I realize if you don't agree on something, if you really, really, really don't agree, your only leverage is you think you can put more pain on them than they can put on you. Precisely. I can hold out longer than you can. Look, I'm a gazillionaire owner. Go ahead. Sit down all year long. Waste a year of your probably, on average, five-year career. Waste a year of that not playing and uh, knock yourself out. I'll continue and, to live my fantastic life as a gazillionaire owner. And the stars of the sport who have outsized influence and uh, at age 29 have more money than I'll ever see in my life say, uh, that's fine, I'll just work out. It'll save my body the wear and tear for a year. No worries. Meanwhile, all the journeyman baseball players, which is most baseball which players, by really. By far most, yeah. Who, who might have a couple of years, three, four, if they're lucky in their career, they're thinking, oh my God, please let us play. Please let us play. Not to mention the vendors. All the hardworking people at the stadiums, uh, you know, the umpires, the trainers, the mascots. clubhouse guys, the mascots. What about the mascots? What are they supposed to do? Hang their giant heads and cry. We have to take a break, but does this apply to? Does this work for minor leagues too? So when Major League Baseball strikes, all of it's shut down? Or no, no, I don't. No, no, I don't think so. Completely no. separate. I okay. think so. So you can enjoy good Triple A baseball. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know. I okay. don't think so. Okay. Why would you come to us expecting us to know that? Armstrong and Getty. Point of privilege. Quick point um, of personal privilege. Yeah. So many Americans believe yada, yada, yada. This is Armstrong and Getty. The lunacy of this, this exercise. What do you call it? Uncomfortable clarity? Hey, man. All right, go, go. <clears throat> I'm ready. He is Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty show. So I got on this kick, uh... When 60 Minutes did that story a couple of weeks ago about uh, people need to find jobs that make their heart sing. I got my dream job. Let me check. Let me put my shirt aside here. My heart is not singing. <laughs> not even humming. <laughs> and it was all about the great resignation, the big quit, the millions of people that have quit their jobs. And if you have been able to quit your job and get a better one that either pays more or you like better, awesome for you. But this change in attitude about work... That seems to be happening where it's got to be a job that just makes your heart sing or 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 better to stay at home. And then uh, or and, you know, I might argue there are some people who think if I'm not just fully realizing my potential as a human through my work, uh, my life sucks. This is not the way things things have gone terribly wrong. Just through crazy expectations. Yeah. Well, yeah. Stories like that one, 60 Minutes, are certainly uh, putting those expectations in people's head. And then we were uh, reading from this Wall Street Journal article yesterday was about the number of men that aren't working, men that are in the prime of working age life that aren't working. As I already mentioned, we have a lower percentage of men in the prime of their uh, working years not working than we did during the Great Depression, which is stunning. And um, this guy named Eberstadt has written a book about it, and he's quoted a lot in the Wall Street Journal. I wanted to read this part because I thought it was pretty important as he ended this. The widespread contempt for many ordinary jobs may be making the problem worse. Journalists and economists who cheer on the Great Resignation often stigmatize work in the same breath. Writing off low-paid jobs is not worth taking. It's astonishingly condescending to say that some work is meaningless. And it shows an astonishing ignorance of how other people live. 
It's wonderful that millions of people are finding better work, but there are millions more who could fill the jobs they're vacating, and disdain for low-skill work helps keep those people away. Instead of stigmatizing low-skill jobs, we should do better to stigmatize idleness, especially among working-age men. Not long ago, the idea that one in eight men, because that's the current stat, one in eight men should be neither working nor looking for work would have been absolutely a horrifying prospect. We should re-embrace the prospect that could do a lot of good for our economy. So extrapolating that, as I think about it, I got to believe culturally right now, if you're if you're a 25-year-old male who lives with your parents, there's less social pressure on you than if you're a 25-year-old male who has a really uncool job. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like right. you, you have more social credit living in your parents' basement and not having a job than if you worked at McDonald's. Whereas when I was young, which isn't a hundred years ago, you wouldn't think the culture could change that much. The idea, I've, I was never, ever once around somebody when I was 27 years old who was my age who lived with their parents. Ever. And it would have been just, you, what now? I mean, unless they were like special ed or something, it would have right. been, what? What? Yeah, they'd have to be pretty severely handicapped for that to be the case. Right. Um, uh, but if you worked a fast food job or something like that, you got a job. You're just, you know, I don't, it wouldn't have been that big a deal. But now it's, I think the culture has changed. And part of that, as that author points out there, is, uh, the way the media and economists handle it. They, they disdain those jobs. They talk about those jobs as they're, as if they're beneath you. We've been doing the whole, um, uh, jobs Americans won't take spiel for decades now. And convincing a lot of Americans that, no, you don't need to do that kind of work. You don't know. Cleaning up hotels or restaurant work. No, better better to not work at all. You know, I think it may be part and parcel of a lot of things we're seeing these days, including the uh, the Republican Party becoming much more the, the party of the working class. And that's that, you know, college-educated, suburban, paternalistic superiority syndrome. You know, you've got a women's studies degree from uh, Ivy League school or something like that. These people are convinced they are better than everybody else and True. smarter and can tell us how to run our lives. And I think that relates to some stuff we'll be talking about uh, next hour, uh, attitudes about COVID and lockdowns and regulations and such. So that's just catching up from something we talked about later in the show yesterday. Then I came across this just randomly yesterday. I think I saw it on Twitter. Hey, Fox is talking about us. It's the anti-work subreddit on on Reddit that has 1.7 million idlers, it says here. Uh, and uh, The description is, it's a subreddit for those who, if you don't know Reddit, and I just became aware of Reddit recently, maybe I'm the uh, last one to the party, but it's just a gazillion different forums of different topics, and you can create your own one, and maybe it catches on. A subreddit for those who want to end work are curious about ending work, want to get the most out of a work-free life, want more information on anti-work ideas, and want personal help with their own jobs, work-related struggles. Since this is radio, I've got to tell you, I'm making an expression like, how does that work? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like there's an anti-breathing subreddit, and people say, I've given up breathing. I haven't breathed for three or three days. I'm like, how, how does that work? Yeah. The forum's slogan, according to Wikipedia, is unemployment for all, not just the rich. Wow. Uh, We're through the looking glass, And not only is it uh, celebrating the idea of not working in a society where people don't have to work, like, did, did Putin start this and we just have enough slackers that joined on and made it run? Or I don't know what. 
Um, members frequently discuss ways to slack off, cheat, sabotage, and steal from their employees, employers as an act of defiance. So if you do have a job, you need to sabotage your employer, because how dare they make you do something that's not making your heart sing? But In let me exchange just, for money. Let me just go through some of the posts, just random posts. And I, God, I could have spent all night on this thing. Uh, some girl named Sid posted, who has a rose next to her name. Uh, imagine if we worked less. Imagine if we walked around our communities, talked to our neighbors, spent time in nature, played. Imagine if we could read, write, fall in love without that nagging feeling of needing to do something, in quotes. Imagine if your life was your own. Imagine growing up, you little punk. <laughs> imagine she, I can't tell how old she is. She's young, early 20s. Imagine getting to your early 20s without having come up against an explanation of how that's impossible. <laughs> no, At no point, your parents, a teacher, college, nothing ever explained to you how you're, you're, you're describing. Well, imagine if we could all fly, and then we'd be able to get places without cars. You might as well say the same thing. That would be way better for pollution. Uh, all you, I, and this is a different person, all you, I never used a sick day in my life, folks, are only screwing yourselves as well as the rest of us. Listen to me. It's not noble to break your body for your employer. It's not admirable to, to brag about netting only 12 hours sleep in the past week. You're not hustling. You're a pawn, a peon, a worthless cog that will get tossed away. Wow. It, it, boy, your Putin troll theory is interesting. That sounds like straight out of, you know, Karl Marx. Most of the people I know who use few to uh, no sick days are, uh, I would define them as successful. Is what I would define them as. Uh, yeah. Boy, that Imagine girl with her rose. Imagine leprechauns feeding pixie dust to unicorns. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you child? No. Imagine if you could poop gold bars. <laughs> wow. The pain. The pain. <laughs> okay, small gold bars. Better. Uh, they got a cartoon here. It's a, actually a Hank Hill cartoon. How about but the coins like I'm a slot machine. <laughs> oh, jeez. Ching, 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 ching. <laughs> Uh, they got a cartoon here. It's uh, actually Hank Hill and his son. I haven't watched The King of the Hill in many, many years. What's his son? Bobby? Uh, Bobby and, 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 and Hank are talking to some guitar player guy. And the guitar player guy is labeled as hustle culture. They use this term a lot on the anti-work Reddit. Hustle culture, mm, which we've yeah. all been brainwashed to do, and it's making America worse. You're not making jobs better. You're just making living worse, he says to hustle culture. Wow. Um, and then another cartoon. My parents in their 20s. Let's have a baby. Me in my 20s. Going to sleep is cheaper than buying food. Because Wait, of what? the rampant starvation all across America among people in their 20s. Wow. This is what it looks like. Ancient Rome. Yeah. Now I get it. Yeah. This is what it looks like. This is what your, this is what your, uh, your, your 25 year old who got the graduate degree who lives in your basement is doing at night before they go to sleep. They're on this subreddit posting or reading. Here's somebody working your whole life just to enjoy a few years when you're close to death is one of the biggest scams. Okay. So, uh, all of life and society owes you the opportunity for idleness. Getting back to that Wall Street Journal article. Craft a society where you get a certain number of years of idleness provided to you by somebody. How, how does that work? Well, show me the being, the animal, even the amoeba that exists without effort to feed itself. That there aren't any. 
And Th- that's uh, I, man, I'd like to talk to these people. What's the alternative? What do you envision? Explain it in detail, please. Right. right. I'll do one more of these because I could do this all day long. It's just it was blowing my mind. I'm loving this. Um, uh, here's one where they break down the uh, the, the expenses. They're a, they're a McDonald's employee, apparently. Either they're a McDonald's employee or they're tweeting on behalf of another McDonald's employee, another hot early 20-something chick. Uh, savings, $100. Mortgage, rent, $600. Car payment, $150. Adds it all up, blah, blah, blah. But what I make a minimum wage. So that's uh, perpetuating the old myth that your minimum wage jobs are designed for you to be able to live off of. Right. Or even support a family on, according to some, you know, way lefties. Uh, yeah, like you just brought up, I don't... I feel like I could argue, not even argue, just convince these people of the error of their position with like a chalkboard and in 15 minutes. It's just uh, where do you expect you're you're not going to work? Who's going to provide the, the home that you're living in? This whole idle lifestyle, the neighborhood you're going to walk around. Who, who's how, how are the, the houses going to pay their fair share? Oh, uh, that could be it. That they could be under the under the belief that there is just. So much extra tax money out there among the rich that. But why would the rich continue to go to work every day so that you can walk around the neighborhood and fall in love and all the stuff that you described without working? I know you, you described it as an error in their thinking. It's an impossibility. It's it's just bizarre. It's hard to know where to begin arguing the point. Yeah. So between the disdain for certain kinds of jobs and the just wildly unicorn like view of how people feed themselves i I don't know where we're headed i don't know what percentage of people feel this but well we we have a bigger percentage of working age men not working than we did during the great depression so it's here well if hard times truly come they'll be disabused of their notions in a big hurry to paraphrase thomas sowell there are some ideas so idiotic only an intellectual could hold them i think this is one of them armstrong and getty The Armstrong and Getty Show. Lawrence Summers, uh, Democrat, old school Democrat, not new woke Democrat, but Lawrence Summers, economic guy, got fired from Harvard years ago for something stupid. But anyway, he said, we have a serious inflation problem, whatever the precise CPI reading is, because there is a lot of uh, from the White House briefing room, you know, and every everybody does this. And I understand why you, you try to poke holes in the numbers. Here's why this is misleading. It's not that bad. And he is saying, we have a serious inflation problem, whatever the precise reading is. Inflation is running well ahead of anything seen during the guns and butter Vietnam episode and 50% above where it was when President Nixon imposed wage price controls. So he's putting this in terms of some serious economic bad news as a Democrat. Uh, he went on to say, White House cites leading economists as foreseeing sharp declines in inflation over the next two years. Certainly could happen. On the other hand, same kind of consensus was looking for inflation at well below 3% this year, and it turned out to be 7 That's some dark news from a Democrat right there. Yeah, it is. And uh, unquestionably, part of the inflation situation is the just disastrous uh, disruption of the supply chain. You know, shipping and the rest of it. We've all gone over that. Uh, but what I find myself wondering, and this is getting into PhD and economics stuff, but when that stuff does sort itself out, presuming it does, tensions with China, hmm, but presuming it does sort itself out, after two, 
three years of rampant inflation, I don't think things will just go back. I don't think they'll sort themselves out and all of a sudden we'll have no inflation, go back to the prices of today or whatever. I, I think that will probably have caused some lasting weirdness that will take a very long time to sort out. And I'm not sure exactly how, but but you hear what I'm saying. I mean, if we're if wages are chasing prices, which are chasing wages, which are chasing prices, then all of a sudden China says, Phew, we're all caught up. All the container ships are out to sea now. The ports are cleared. We're good. I mean, that's still going to have lasting effects for God knows how long. So I don't think anybody has any idea what the next uh, five years looks like. Boy, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but my fiscally conservative friends have been warning for years now, hey, we've run up this crazy debt and we're handling it now with interest rates at near zero. When they when interest rates go back up again, man, our payments every month on this debt are just going to be out of control. And the Fed announced they're going to raise interest rates several times this year, so... That debt that we've been holding on to. So do we accumulate more debt to pay off our present debt? Hello, disaster. Ever paid off a credit card monthly statement with another credit card? (laughs) It's not a good spiral to get into. It's a dead-end road, friends. Dead-end road. Speaking of inflation, I've talked about shrinkflation and explained it to my kids, and we kind of have fun at the grocery store pointing out the various examples. Oh, that's good parenting. I don't remember this happening in the... 70s, 80s, last time there was inflation, maybe the companies just caught on to people really notice when you raise the prices. So keep the price the same. Just make the product smaller. Cereal boxes have gotten smaller and now thinner. They're like a Reader's Digest thick. Well, there's a good reference for anybody under 40. What the hell, Jack? Um, they've gotten thin is the thing. The The box of cereal used to be this thick. This, but Now it's smaller and it's just like this wide. Well, here's someone <laughs> sent an actual picture of a, a, a bag of Lay's potato chips shrinkflation so that they didn't raise the, the price. They didn't shrink the size of the bag, but he opened up the bag and there's like no chips in there. There's like four chips in this bag of chips. He said the, um, the checker even asked, does this bag have anything in it? What's, so, what's their price per chip? I mean, how much are they saving? Do they assume that you will buy four bags because you need your chips? Or what? I just, how much are they saving and or making by giving you an insufficient number of chips? I don't know. I don't think the game is working. I mean, I now buy a couple of boxes of each brand of cereal at a time because Mm. you get the box home, you pour each kid a bowl of cereal, and the box is empty. So, I mean, I've caught on to your ruse. And now I have to buy two boxes, which, guess what, costs more. Yeah, yeah. when we were on family vacation, we were all throwing out various examples. Hotels do not do what they used to do, like come in and uh, change your sheets and towels and all that sort of stuff. They don't. You stay there for three days, you have the same stuff the whole time. So they didn't raise the price of the room, because you'd notice that, but they cut back on the services. And there's all kinds of examples of that uh, with the inflation. Yeah. Different topic. How much time have I got, Michael? How much? Three. Okay. Tons of time. Good, good talk show host can tell his life story in three minutes. So uh, somebody threw out the topic on the Twitterverse yesterday. What do you think the greatest threat to mankind is? And I thought, well, this is kind of an interesting one. But Tim Sandifer weighed in, our friend Tim the Lawyer. Collectivism. And I thought, collectivism? Collectivism? So I uh, really only ever think of collectivism in the economic term. So I was thinking thinking this collectivism. So I looked it up. The definition of collectivism being... Um, the theory and practice of ownership of land and the means of production by the people or the state. That's what I was thinking. That's not what I think Tim was meaning. The other definition of collectivism is uh, 
the practice or principle of giving a group priority over each individual in it. That, I assume, is what Tim Sandifer is talking about. Any of several types of social organization in which the individual is seen as being subordinate to a social collectivity as a, such as a state, a nation, a race, a social class. That is going on to a great extent in our country and, I guess, around the world. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I suppose we could ask him, but as he is a, a great authority and author on economic freedom, it wouldn't surprise me if he had the first one in mind as well. I mean, there is no human endeavor as good at killing people as collectivist uh, economic slash political systems. Communism. I mean, they killed the hundreds of millions. Please, they made Hitler look like a punk. So, you know, it might be both, because both both are terrible. Well, current, yeah, clearly the whole woke thing is uh, you're part of this group, and this is the way you need to think and behave. And if you're not, you're, uh, you're kicked to the outskirts of the herd and ruined. Right. Or, you know, ultimately put in a re-education camp or, or what have you. Fascinating thought starter, I thought. What do we got coming up? I know Greatest threat to mankind, not meteors. Not uh, the next thing to leak out of the Wuhan lab, but collectivism. There you go. I'll be damned.